1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's Senior Health and Science Reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, you'll hear an interview with Emily Oster. She's a professor of economics at Brown University, where she focuses on health economics and statistical methods. She's also the creator of the website explaincovid.com, which provides unbiased research and data on the coronavirus. She's also the author of the books Expecting Better and Crib Sheet, which analyze the data behind many pregnancy and parenting rules and best practices. We spoke on July 1st, 2020, as part of CNBC's Healthy Returns, the Path Forward series. Take a listen. I would love for you to start out just to kind of explaining to our audience how you use economics to help people take available information, really make decisions, just kind of help explain your work.
2: Yeah. So I really think of economics as kind of a science of decision making um, and of sort of thinking about what our question is and then thinking about how we can bring data to those to those questions. And we trade costs and benefits. But we also need to think about what can we really learn from pieces of data? So my work in economics has those two pieces. Uh, and when I got pregnant and then had kids, I found I was kind of using those tools, using the tools of framing the decision and thinking about what are the costs and benefits and then thinking about what the data says. And I was doing my job in the service of my, of my pregnancy and then, uh, and then later my parenting. And so the books are about that uh, and take that kind of, kind of approach. And people sometimes say it's a bit weird for an economist to do this, but I actually think the combination of decision-making tools and data tools in economics are kind of perfect for thinking about choices in your life not just uh, not just in the economy.
1: Yeah, and a lot of health choices too, actually. The New York Times just had a, a headline yesterday uh, on an article that was called What Coronavirus Researchers Can Learn from Economists. And I thought that was just a really great setup for our discussion. It was really just about uh, using existing data and what they called natural experiments um, to try to make decisions faster than these wonderfully pre-planned you know, c- clinical trials that we would love to be able to do, but we're in a pandemic. Um, so tell us about your website, COVID Explained, which is at explaincovid.org, um, and, you know, the genesis of it, why you decided to, to put it together.
2: Yeah, so when the, when the pandemic started, I think that there was uh, a lot of confusion about epidemiology. And we got very quickly to this sort of very simple uh, epidemiology flatten the curve picture that I think was really helpful for a lot of people and sort of early on. But at some point, I realized that there wasn't a similar thing for the virology, like the way that you could get the virus and how it spread. And so I found myself talking to people who seemed to have the impression that if you go to the grocery store, and someone has come before you and touched the salad box, and three hours later you touch it, that you immediately get coronavirus. And that isn't true. And that kind of misunderstanding leads people to ask questions like, what would be the point of washing my hands? But if people actually understood that, you know, if you wash your hands, then the virus doesn't on your hands, and then when you touch your face, you don't get sick, that helps us think about the right choices. And so we wanted to find a way to try to explain some of the, the, the virology, like the real science in a way that was understandable to, to lay people, not dissimilar in some ways from how I thought about pregnancy, but of course, in the virus, not the OB setting.
1: Right. Do you think that speaks to a little bit some of the limitations around the communications uh, in public health? I mean, we're, we are in kind of a unique time where we are we, don't, we are not hearing a lot from the CDC, directly. Um, I covered Ebola in 2014 and 2015, and we were basically hearing from the CDC. It felt like every day. Um, we don't hear from them directly anymore. I mean, is there a vacuum here that you're trying to fill?
2: There's a huge vacuum. And I think part of it is there's a tremendous number of very smart people working on the details of the virus and trying to make progress, but they're not always the people who are the best at explaining the, what is happening with the virus to a general public. And I think that was the piece that we kind of saw missing. And that's the piece I would have typically thought something like the CDC would fill in on. But as you say that that we've really seen an like an incredible fall down uh, on, on what I think is their responsibility. They have not, uh, they have not done that.
1: They have put out some guidance for daily life, which in some ways I think kind of jives with what you help uh, people think through on COVID Explained. You know, if you plan to go visit grandparents, here's what you should think about in making those decisions. Um, But, you know, there's not information for everything. And sometimes things are opening up, uh, which people take to mean it's safe to do this but it actually might not. And so that brings me to wanna to ask you about daycares. I mean, these are opening up, um, but you know, my husband and I haven't sent our son back to daycare yet um, and you're collecting some data on this. So tell us about that project. Yeah. So
2: um, so I had hoped that and I keep hoping that there will be some official information that comes out, could be from the CDC, could be from states or municipalities about what has gone on inside daycares that have been open. So one thing people sort of may not necessarily know, although if you think about it, it has to be true is that a lot of daycares, even in heavily affected areas, have been open during the pandemic for to serve kids of essential workers, for example. So that's a real source of information that I think many parents would find compelling or helpful in making their own choices about whether they should send their kids to, to childcare. Uh, but that data has not been released. There hasn't been a lot of information about that. And at some point, I sort of like lost it. And I basically uh, was like, I'm just gonna do something here. And, uh, and so we have a, a survey and I just want to be clear, the survey is a Google form uh, that I circulated on Twitter and through some networks of, of daycares and had daycares report. We were open. This is how many people we serve. This is how many staff we had. Um, and you know this is how many COVID cases we have. And as an academic, it makes me a little like cringy because this isn't the best data that we would want. what I hope is that we will get better data and that more data will come out. And that that the realization that, you know, you can get 1,000 daycares with 30,000 kids in a week to report this, that that will push states or other or the CDC to try to get this kind of better data, which I think we really, we really need.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, What have you seen so far from the data? And can you draw any conclusions from it? Yeah, so what we see
2: is in the data that we have, which is actually I think pretty consistent with much of the other information that we could put together from different sources, um, is that the the rates of COVID in these daycares are quite low. Uh, They're particularly low for kids. Uh, They're higher for for providers than for, for children. Um, And they're not very dissimilar from what you would see in the general population for providers. So if we sort of look a little bit at like what share of the people living in these areas are having COVID and what share of the daycare teachers are having it, those numbers are not not dissimilar. Um, I think the other thing that we've been looking at a little bit that you can see a little in the data is that a lot of the cases are isolated. So you'll see a few cases, um, but not like everyone in the daycare being affected. So that's something else that I think we should generally be looking for is, you know, are daycares a source of infection? Like, are they like are, are they clusters or is it more that there are a small number of cases um, that are that are isolated the way you might see in any setting, daycare or otherwise?
1: And until you know there are really solid data um, to tell us, yes, it's safe. No, it's not. How do you uh, recommend people kind of walk through the decision making about what to do? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a few
2: pieces. So one is I, one of the things I've I've just been telling everybody to start with is like, like decide what your question is, is your question, you know, or what's your alternative is another way to say that in this setting. So is the question, should I send my kid to daycare now or in two months? Is the question, should I send them to daycare or get a nanny? Is the question, should I send them to daycare or quit my job? And when you, when you frame it, not should I send my kid to daycare in a kind of vague sense, but should I send them relative to this other alternative? I think that is very helpful for thinking about, the size of the risk and why would you delay and you know is a delay of two months what do you think something's gonna be different there and what is it that's gonna be that's gonna be different um and then I think there's a second piece which is just looking at you know how much risk or how much risk is there in your area and is your daycare doing something to to mitigate that risk and also how important is this to you? You know, is the benefit of your kid going back something you see as really large. And I think that could be mental health benefits. That can be benefits in terms of going back to work. Um, it could be a, you know, a variety of, of different things. And then you kind of have to make a decision. I think part of what's hard about this decision and virtually every other decision that we're facing in the case of, of COVID is that you can't be sure if you have made the right choice, you're going to have to make a decision understanding there's some residual uncertainty.
1: Right. Well, that brings us to a viewer question, which also kind of ties in, I think, some of the work you did on language uh, in Um, So this is from Soleil La Liberté on Twitter, who asks um, she, she notes, their daycare providers, or they know their daycare providers are wearing masks. What's your assessment of the harms or benefits of this policy? I'm concerned mask wearing could impede our 10 month old's language development. Are there data to assess that? So there's not much data to assess
2: that. I will say that you know there are there are societies, cultures where people wear masks a lot. Um, so mask wearing, sort of standard mask wearing, is much more common in Asia uh, than it is in in the U.S. And so there isn't any strong reason to think that your kid will not learn to to speak. It is true that watching people's mouths move is something that is one of the ways that kids learn to to speak. Um, but you want to remember that your kid is with you probably a lot more than they're than they daycare, even if they're they're. Uh, there for the whole day and your mouth is you're not wearing a mask probably with your with your kids. So, you know, I think there's no um, there's nothing in the data that would say this is some kind of disaster. Part of that is that we don't have a lot of information about that. And that's going to be true. That's going to be the answer to most of the questions you have is what we don't really know because we've never had a viral pandemic with daycare providers wearing masks before. Right.
1: (laughs) That's true. Um, You know, similar questions for for day camps. You know, how are you assessing these? I guess if it's not too personal a question, you know, for your own family, thinking about, you know, whether to send your kids or not. Um, You know, some folks have talked about the idea that sleepaway camps, and this applies to colleges as they're thinking about this too, might be safer because you can kind of create a bubble um, versus day camps. How do you look at those two different ideas?
2: Yeah, so I think that these are really three very different things. So let me tell, let me start with the day camps. Um, so uh, my kids, uh, Rhode Island opened day camps on Monday, and my kids have been at tennis camp um, for the last two days, um, and it's great. Uh, and you know, for us, I think that there was a calculus around you know needing sort of the the value for for us, the value that we saw for our kids, and evaluation of the safety of of, of an outdoor camp that's organized in pods in a place, Rhode Island, which is one of the few places that's doing really well. Um, so we have very low COVID rates. I think I would, I think I would do this very differently if we were in, in Texas. And so I think that's part of the uh, kind of, you got to think about what's going to work for the circumstance that you, that you find yourself in. This discussion of sleepaway camps, I think has been very interesting. And the question of, you know, what about, kid, like, if you get all the kids together, then they'll, just that that will be fine it's like a, it's like a bubble i think that some of that discussion misses a little bit that the people who are working at the sleepaway camps may be uh may possibly get ill and that's also true of of uh of day camp counselors although one of the benefits of day camps is that the counselors tend to be younger and they also therefore are at lower risk so i've i've sort of seen this as a potentially like a little bit of a good test for for schools in the fall if we can keep
1: would you sum up what what the data, the available data show on on the safety of schools?
2: I think the available data on the safety of schools is actually fairly reassuring, although the data itself is very limited. So the places that schools have been open are Europe um, and there are, so for example, uh, some data that have come out of Denmark and Sweden that suggest that actually teachers in schools are not especially more likely than the general public to be affected. Uh, we kind of know kids are less likely to be affected. So I think really the public health concerns revolve around some combination of school staff and the general movement of people that accompanies school uh, school entry. And again, I think the, the data out of Europe is is reassuring, which is different from saying that nobody in schools has gotten, has gotten COVID or that there haven't been any outbreaks associated with schools. And I think part of what's going to be hard about the reopen of schools is no matter how safely we do it, there are going to be some cases of COVID in schools, among people who work in schools, and some people are gonna get sick. And I think we're going to, as a society, need to think about how we trade that off against the very, very, very real benefits to children of being in school, both socio-emotional, but also just basic learning. Kids are not learning math well at home or reading well at home.
1: Right. Well, there was this Washington Post op-ed that you, just commented on on Twitter by uh, Bill Hanage and uh, Helen Jenkins, who uh, you were writing that we can we have a better likelihood of being able to safely more safely reopen schools in the fall if we close down bars and gyms now. Um, there was a guy who responded on Twitter to that. Frankly, I don't care about their kids. Um, I just watched your TED Talk actually uh, that you did in two thousand seven about um, AIDS in Africa and really about Affecting people's behaviors. Um, is there data on how to affect behaviors? You know, of a guy like that who responds on Twitter. You know, this doesn't affect me. So why should I change my behavior to help kids go to school?
2: Um, you know, changing people's behaviors is, is really hard. One of the things my academic work is on is how do you get people to eat healthy? Which is something where you know we tell people eat vegetables, eat vegetables, and still people eat a tremendous amount of sugar. Um, and so it's, it's hard to get people to do things even that are in their own self interest, forget about things that are in other people's, uh, other people's Mm. self interest. And I think that's why in some sense in the public health space, people have been focused on, let's just close bars because we can't get people to not go to them. Um, and you know, and I would like to think that we're all, we can sort of like come together and all be, be together in, in trying to make a, make it through this, but, but somehow it doesn't. Seem like we've we've gotten there, and and I actually worry a l- little bit about sort of learning from uh, some of the experiences in Europe in that uh, in that setting because you say well what's different from between Sweden and the US? I think people in Sweden were pretty bought into the idea that it's important to keep schools open and we're going to do our part to try to make that happen I'm not sure we're going to get the same kind of uh, the same kind of uh, uh, help from from non parents in in the U S.
1: Mm. Well, I wonder also, I mean, how does that idea apply to mask wearing? Um, does it mean that there needs to be a national mandate? You know, does it need to be illegal not to wear a mask in public in order to enforce that if, if folks can't be motivated to do it, you know, otherwise? I mean, I, I, I think it's very,
2: the U.S. is not built on telling people what to do, um, and I I think it's going to I worry that messages like if you don't wear a mask, we're going to arrest you or, you know, punish you in some way is just going to lead people to, to less want to do it. And so mm-hmm. I, I wish that there was an education related way to explain to people that actually this is about protecting yourself. It's about protecting everyone else. It's about being able to keep, you know, to open the bars. If that's what you you know, if that's the thing that you want, that this is a behavior that you can do that can help that be be achieved also and I but you know i I worry the mask thing has become so politicized and it's become something where it's like you're you're either a mask wearer or you're not a mask wearer which is of course doesn't really is not right um and I this is, this aspect of this has been very frustrating watching people fight to not wear a mask in a grocery store I, I find puzzling
1: yeah um, well, we're getting some questions from viewers, so I want to get to them. Uh, and some of them are just kind of practical uh, things, like how do you think through different risks? So, from Greg Neal, uh, they ask In order to experience a safer, lower contact vacation, we are renting an Airbnb. Are there concerns entering a rental home and precautions we should take?
2: Yeah, so I think the very good news uh, for your vacation uh, is that the coronavirus does not live for very long on surfaces. So, I think a simple thing would be to say, uh, make sure that it's been you know a day since the last people have checked out and that they clean the place and then i think from there um th- this is a very good uh a very good option um because the the virus is not it doesn't like stick around for days and days the way measles or something uh or something does so a sort of good clean cleaning and a day between uh guests and uh and you're you're you should not get sick from your Airbnb. <laughs>
0: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I want to go back to this school's question, um, because You also um, were quoted in a a New York Times piece, um, just talking about more creative ways to think about safely reopening schools. Um, Maybe just talk about what some of those ideas could be, and is there a hesitance that we see in um, school systems or governments thinking about adopting these different ideas and and just sort of a, okay, we're just gonna fall back on virtual learning if if it's not safe to bring everybody back? Yes.
2: Particular thing that I was suggesting, which I think is not the only version of this, is just that we try to make use of, say, a younger workforce, maybe kids who are taking a gap year before college if their college is not opening, to try to do some, not teaching, but even just supervision of kids. So, you know, you're in school for half a day with your teacher and then for half a day with effectively a camp counselor who maybe supervises some online learning. Um, and I think that the ideas like that sort of recognize that school is about being in the classroom with a teacher, but it's also about providing a kind of childcare in a sort of supervised environment, uh, which parents need and kids need. And that some of the learning losses are because kids don't have anyone to provide them with a computer and, and internet access. So there, I think there are a variety of solutions that would be in that kind of space of just using a different type of workforce, doing things a little differently inside the school. I am worried that almost all the solutions I've seen are just assuming, okay, we have what we have. There's, We're not going to add any more people or anything else. We're just going to have half as much. So if we need half of the kids here, we're just going to have half the days. And we're going to be on the morning, afternoon, or we're going to have two days on, two days off, uh, or a week on, a week off. And and those solutions are are really difficult. So they're going to be really difficult for for parents and for the economy and for kids. and. I would like to think that we can come up with something better uh, than that, um, but I I haven't seen, I mean, I haven't, maybe, maybe down, maybe in a week we're going to learn a lot of really great plans are, are coming out, but the ones I've seen so far seem pretty in the box.
1: And why do you think that is? Why, why do you think, you know, in so many ways, like I cover the drug industry very closely and I'm seeing activity here and people doing things differently, you know, and there are a lot of hopes that the pandemic will change things for the better. Um, why Why is that potentially not happening in terms of thinking more creatively in other areas? I mean, I
2: think there are a lot of constraints that schools face. Uh, they don't have a lot of money. So some of the solutions I'm suggesting are expensive. Uh, they're not maybe as expensive as some other solutions you could suggest, uh, but they they will cost money and school districts are not are not always very well funded. Um I think that, you know, to be completely honest, there are some it there are going to be some complicated issues in negotiating with unionized teachers around returns to school. And I think that's something that, you know, school systems are going to grapple with, they're going to limit their ability to do some of these things. Um, but, you know, the other thing is that schools are trying to fix this in the middle of also trying to deal with, you know, the kids who need the summer school. And it's like, there's so many crises at once. And it's so difficult that I think it's not an easy time to step back and be like, let's think about an awesome creative solution to this. Uh, because you're just every moment you're trying to fight some fire.
1: Right. Um, in the data from Europe, did anybody do anything differently or, you know, creative that that worked well? Are there good models or they just kind of kept, kept going? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Sweden pretty much just kept going. I think most places, and this is true of Sweden and also many other places, uh, were more uh, more aggressive about opening schools for younger kids than for older kids. Um, This is something that I haven't seen as much of in the U.S., but I think we're going to have to see is that high schools are probably need to be treated a bit differently than elementary schools both because high school kids are actually more likely to get sick than than younger kids but also i think there's a recognition that it's easier to distance learn with a 17 year old than it is with a 4 year old um so that's the kind of the one sort of cre- creative isn't really the right word but way in which europe was sort of doing things that were a little different than normal but for the most part they kind of went back tried to be a little distanced and that was that was it
1: mm. Um, I want to ask you also about this idea that um, it seems so frequently the economy is pitted against people's health. Like these two things are separate. Um, How do you look at that, you know, with reopening and the risks associated therein? Is it either our economic health or our actual health?
2: I don't think I mean, I I,
1: there is a piece of that, of
2: course, that like there's a if we reopen, that's good for the economy in the short run. And it has some public health costs. But I think that there are very real public health costs of like the long-term, uh, very real long-term public health costs of these particularly things like kids not being in school, not learning as much, making them less likely to go to college and you know, complete high school and they will earn less later. And we know that that puts them at higher risk for later health problems. Putting aside even the like immediate issues of, of mental health that we're having and the fact that kids are not always getting enough to eat. Right. So the school lunch program feeds like 40 million kids a year. And a lot of those kids are hungry because there's no school lunch program. So, you know, we we need to kind of think about a balance. I don't think it's right to say that there's a bunch of people who are like, open the economy because who cares about health? And then a bunch of people who are like health
1: at all costs. I mean, these things are integrally related. Absolutely. Well, we're just about out of time, but um, if you want to leave folks with sort of one message, um, what, what is it? Oh, my gosh. I guess
2: I would say that understanding is the key to moving forward, which is like a sort of pat thing to say. But I, I do feel like if people had even a little bit of a better sense of, of kind of what is, what is the way that the virus works, that we might be able to come a little bit better on sort of how we can, um, how we can reopen safely.
1: That was Emily Oster, professor of economics at Brown University and creator of the website explaincovid.com. She and I spoke on July 1st, 2020, as part of CNBC's Healthy Returns, the Path Forward series. The keynote is produced by the CNBC Events team. For information on upcoming virtual events and how you can participate, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Take care and thanks for listening.